Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, no one plans to get sick. And yet, here we are. My name is Matthew Zachary. A quarter century ago, I was given six months to live with a diagnosis of terminal brain cancer. For more than 15 years, I've been ranting and raving on the air about stupid cancer and now stupid healthcare, and I'm just getting warmed up. So let's all go make healthcare suck less together because you know what? We're all out of patience. Hey, that's the name of the show. Hello, friends. Welcome back. Got a good show for you today. What happens when the doctor gets sick? Dr. Annie Brewster was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis in 2001. It's been 21 years, but she ignored her symptoms and was in classic denial for five straight years until she was finally convinced to take herself seriously and be her own advocate. Years later, she's now a practicing internist at Mass General. She's done TED Talks. She's been part of incredible research for published studies. She's working in a respiratory illness clinic during COVID. But what's more, she's got a great new book, The Healing Power of Storytelling, Using Personal Narrative to Navigate Illness, Trauma, and Loss. It's a great book on sale today wherever books are sold. I'm so proud to know her. She's so passionate, so authentic. Enjoy the show. Annie Brewster, welcome to Out of Patience. Thanks for having me. I'm really happy to be here. So out of the gate, I see that you have the credentials MD after your name, not PhD per se. So that means when someone shouts, is there a doctor in the house? You can help. I uh, yes, I guess I have to try. I think it's my legal responsibility to try. Has that never happened before? It has happened. It has happened M- multiple times. Yeah. And how many? I hate it. I hate it. Oh, really? Because it's a huge responsibility. It happened once on an airplane, and I basically had to determine if the person was having a stroke or not, and if we needed to land the plane. I said give her some juice and let's see if we can walk up and down the aisle. And that's what we did. And she was okay. And then I have another story where it was a little bit wacky and didn't work out quite as well. Everyone was fine, but it was a reminder, like always call an ambulance. If it crosses your mind that you think you should call an ambulance, but I hate to be an overreactor. So I was like, "Mm, I think we can handle this. But anyway, this was all fine. It was somebody who fell off a horse and I was more like concerned, is her spinal cord injured? Can she move her extremities? Did she have a head trauma? No. So she sat up and was like, you know, a little winded. But I think I said to the people who owned the rant, I think that you can take her to the clinic. She's okay. Drive her there. This was in Arizona. So then they drove her, you know, it was maybe 10 minutes. And it turned out she had eight broken ribs and, it, and punctured lungs and they medevaced her to Phoenix. Jesus so Christ. Like, wow. <laughs> Oh boy. So I, so after that, I'm like, call the ambulance. When in doubt. Do yourself a favor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Perfect. Your MD suits you well. Well done. Okay. What I love about your story the most is that it's a traditional and yet not traditional 
young adult person has a great life. Shit happens. What the fuck do I do now? And I want to start because your MS diagnosis can drink. It's 21 years. Congratulations. Yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. It is a long, long time. So I saw that you uh, was reading and I stalked you pretty well that, you know, it took you five years to get on meds. I'd love to talk about the whole. Are we taking you seriously? Does anyone care that there's something wrong with me? I know my body better than you. Was that was that the thing? No, no. It was really just like, honestly, the power of denial, which is is incredible to me how humans can, you know, not know they're pregnant until they give birth. I mean, the power of denial is huge, right? And I kind of sort of owned it and had it in my head that someone had told me I had this disease, but I wasn't really ready to absorb it. And so it was a very gradual process of me sort of coming to own that I actually needed to take medication. And I think, you know, sometimes denial is useful at times for short periods. You don't want to get stuck in it. I kind of got stuck in it for a while, but it was also sort of like I just I was in medical training at the time. I just had my blinders on and and like I had one bout of it and then I got better. And then I, I actually didn't really have a relapse until that five year mark down the road. And that's when I woke up to it, really. Well, one of the things in, in oncology, I'm sure you're aware that the doctors are typically like, oh, you're too young for this. It's nothing. So you feed into your own confirmation bias about ignorance and just being in denial. All right. I guess I don't have this. And meanwhile, <laughs> I got something. I know. Well, like the way it played out for me is, you know, they told me I had it. You know, lots of symptoms leading up to it, which I did ignore those for a while until I kind of couldn't. Then an MRI, but I only had one spot on my spinal cord at the time. And so in theory, it could have really been a lot of other things. There are things like something called transverse myelitis, which can just be inflammation from an infection or something that can cause symptoms like MS. And I wasn't convinced because I didn't have multiple lesions that I had multiple sclerosis. I mean, it turns out the doctor who told me I had it was right. But I wasn't ready when he told me that I should start medicine at that moment and like change my whole life. It just took me a little while to adjust, a long while. But, you know, over those five years, I was slowly integrating it into my life. It wasn't like I didn't think about it until I got a second relapse. And then all of a sudden I was like, OK, I have it. It was a very gradual acceptance, I'd say. Was MS perceived as a boogeyman a lot more back then than it is today? Or is there some kind of stronger acceptance of it now? I don't think so. I really don't. I mean, I think it's who you talk to. And I think still a lot of people, they hear MS and they're like, oh my gosh, that's so horrible. And they have one image of what that means, which is you know, profound disability in a wheelchair. And that does happen for some people, but there's a huge continuum of symptoms along the way. It can be so many different things. Sometimes I even wonder if it is really just one illness because it's so variable how it impacts different people. Well, we can get to this in the second half of the show, but there's new evidence. You may have seen this that it might be virally linked. Yeah, to Epstein-Barr virus, mono. I know. Which, as far as I know, I never had, but so many people have had it and don't know they've had it. So I should really get my antibodies tested and just see because I bet I have had it in the past. Somehow I'm skeptical that it's that simple, but I think that's an interesting theory, and maybe there's a lot to it. Yeah, I have a bunch of articles to talk to you about later. Oh, so, no, because I will say this. like I I have like an aversion to reading scientific data about my own diagnosis. Oh, okay. I know. It's interesting. I mean, I feel like some everyone's different, right? And some people 
devour every little bit of research and want to know all of the science. And I weirdly, because I'm a doctor and I'm supposed to love the, the science and want to read the papers, I just don't want to. Like what I crave and what's really hard to find in healthcare is like, I want to have a doctor that really knows me and who I trust completely, who can just like sift through the research for me and like distill it down to like these nugget bite size. Here's what you need to know. So when did denial turn into like the Hudson? Oh my gosh. See, you're, you're good. You're good. You're a New Yorker. Well, I mean, I think sort of very gradually, let's see, I got my first lesion in 2001 and then it was like 2006 that I started going on medicine. So I guess like actually before I really started sharing my story publicly, I'd kind of come out of it because I did go on the medicine before I started talking about it. But part of that was sort of like wanting to hear stories of other people who were navigating chronic illness and sort of listening for that. I was not going to go to a support group. I just didn't feel like, I don't know, even emotionally stable enough with the idea of it to go into a support group, or I just didn't embrace the identity. When did you decide to go into med school? Okay. Well, that was a very nonlinear path. So I'm going to sound like a crazy person. No, but it's, I... Believe me, I have a, I have a purpose here. Okay. So I went to med school. I started when I was 27. So I was relatively late, although I'll say like half my medical school class was older and half were right out of college. So I fit in. But for me, I, I really wasn't sure that I wanted to be in medicine. I'd grown up with a, a father who was a doctor, but that was a conflictual relationship. But I had seen parts of medicine from when I was really young through him that, 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 moved me. I saw that it could be really meaningful. I used to go on rounds with him and I saw that. But I was also sort of like pushing back against that. Like, I don't want to do what he's doing. Anyway, so then I was just very interested in it, though, because it seemed like a very concrete way to like have meaning and connection with people and also have like a useful skill that I could do something with. But I resisted for a long time. In college, I, I majored in human biology, but I wasn't pre-med. And that was very self-designed major. I went to Stanford and you could design your own. So it was bio, but it also had religious studies and anthropology and psychology. And I didn't do any of the pre-med stuff like chemistry and physics. And I thought about midwifery. I thought about medical anthropology. I went out into the world after I graduated and I worked for a while doing like sexual assault prevention work and AIDS prevention education and was really like trying all sorts of different ways and was trying really hard to avoid medical school. But I kind of kept coming back to it. And then it was really going to Guatemala and working with a doctor down there in a really sort of outside of the box way. He'd actually didn't even go to med school, but that's a whole nother path. But then like passed the boards and like had had found a way to get his medical license going in sort of the back door. So I liked the way he thought he was kind of a out of the box thinker. But just like being with him in Guatemala and he was an ophthalmologist and fixing cataracts in these villages and seeing like the real impact he had on lives, but doing it in a way that um, wasn't sort of just following the traditional linear path really inspired me. And he sort of took me under his wing and then really was encouraging, like, let's do this. And he's no longer living, but his name is John Cheatham. And he really inspired me and believed in me and you know, actually helped fund my med school and was just a great supporter. So that was sort of an inspiration. After college, I didn't go to med school for five years. So I worked, 
And also, I took like a long route through college because I took time off and was in India for two years and was following the Grateful Dead around America for two years. And so I had a very nonlinear path. At any point in time when you realized that you were, might be living with a degenerative disease for the rest of your life, did that inform anything as you were getting into medicine and working with these doctors and being a global citizen in Guatemala and India? Well, it was way after Guatemala and India that I found out that I had MS. So that was just my path to finding coming to medicine. It totally informed my the way I practice medicine and the way I think about medicine for sure. And I was already sort of, by the time I found out I was in residency, I was going into primary care. I was seeing some of what was broken about the system in terms of just being on the provider side and feeling terribly rushed. And, and then getting my diagnosis, I think it's really made me a better doctor, but it showed me things that I never had thought about as a doctor. And I think the, the biggest lesson for me was that as providers, we sometimes, you know, we're there to solve a problem, come up with a diagnosis, give someone a plan, and then our job is done, story over. And what I learned getting a diagnosis was that that's really where it's just beginning. And there's this whole unfolding process after that's actually the harder part of how do you come to terms with that? How do you move forward and make it a part of you and still have a productive, happy life? And doctors are not trained to do that. And that's a big hole in medicine. And I think I learned more from the patient side than I, I did with, from the medical side, I was already feeling like this is frustrating and broken system. Well, you were living a bifurcated, almost bipolar career as a patient and a physician. Have you met other doctors with other shit happens stuff <laughs> that helps Absolutely. them be hybrids? Yeah. I mean, there are definitely a lot of doctors out there who've had shit happen. Most of us do. I like those people. I like those people better. I mean, not better, but I think it really adds a depth of understanding to patient care. I do. Was there any aha moment between 2001, 2006, and 2014 where I watched your TED Talk that you said, ah, oh, I need to write about this? Well, I mean, I think I was sort of percolating on the idea for a while, but I think the aha moment maybe for me was when I had a young woman patient come in one day to my clinic and I actually had saw her in follow-up and she had symptoms that were, you know, forgetting words or just feeling off balance a little bit. Anyway, I ended up having an MRI that was read as consistent with multiple sclerosis. She was 21. She was so upset. She thought her life was over. She was crying. And I did sort of a taboo thing in medicine, which was in that moment to say, you know, I actually have the same diagnosis. And that's taboo because it's like there is a thing in medicine about boundaries. And I totally am a believer in boundaries. But I also think sometimes we go too far with those. And in that moment, it just felt like I wanted to just offer a bit of myself and say, you know, yeah, it's scary. And we don't really know what's going to happen. First of all, let's take it one step at a time and make sure that's really the diagnosis. Secondly, if it is, there's so much variability and I still am working full time and have four kids and my life is full. And, and she was so relieved and we never interacted again because she was visiting from out of town and went back. But something in that moment, like I saw how much that that sharing had really helped her. And that made me realize, okay, like I can do something useful maybe with this story, with what's happened to me. Like maybe I can actually use this to help my patients or other people. And there's power in that. And I think maybe that was an aha moment. 
All right, we'll be right back with Dr. Andy Brewster, who can save you on an airplane. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Andy, we have so many things in common. We were both struck with shit happens as younger people. We were just trying to get our lives together. We both started nonprofits. We could have a whole other podcast therapizing about what that's been like. We're both radio show people, so we understand like what it's like to have a conversation and hope the listeners give a shit about what you're talking about. I really did want to focus on this PubMed article that you wrote about on your blog. And this is on narrative psychology, because I want to lean into storytelling. That's the gist of yeah, your, your book. Yeah. Is there a difference between the semantic of storytelling versus telling your story? Mm, I think there is, because for me, storytelling encapsulates both the telling and the listening and all that that entails in community versus just telling your story is telling your story, which is a, a powerful element of that. So the article is called The Incremental Validity of Narrative Identity in Predicting Well-Being, a Review of the Field of Recommendations for the Future. Like, all right, a lot of words there. What's the one-on-one? Unpack that for us. All right. First of all, I'll say like earlier, I said I don't read research studies. That's like about the biomedical science about MS. I do love to read the research articles like this one, which are about storytelling, just to clarify. This one is actually one of the authors on it is Jonathan Adler, who is one of my favorite collaborators of all time. He's the chief academic officer of Health Story Collaborative. And he is a psychologist who studies the health benefits of narrative. So basically, this study compared what are known as narrative themes in this research of narrative psychology. And it compared it to other more common variables like demographics, you know, socioeconomic status, race, age, all of those things. And it found that the majority of the time, the narrative variables did better at predicting psychological well-being. So the narrative variables are things that we're working with a lot at Health Story Collaborative, 
there are a lot of them, but the ones we focus on, and I'll just name them, are like agency is one, communion is another, redemption is another, um, something called coherence, and then accommodative processing. So these are all like in this field of research, what they look at is stories, and then they compare them to psychological well-being, and they look for these different themes, these narrative themes in the stories, and they code for them. And so like they might say, you know, high themes like a lot of themes of agency is known to be associated with positive mental health. Same with themes of communion. So it's all about looking for the thematic elements. And what this research shows is that it's not so much like the events that happen in your life that matter in terms of our psychological well-being. It's really the themes rather than the, the content or the events. So to me, that's powerful. Is there any one particular thing that's happened scientifically, outcome-based, that surprised you? The study, I think, that grabbed me the most um, when I first was learning about his research was one that looked at psychotherapy patients over time and had them write a narrative at the outset and then take a psychological survey to you know, evaluate their mental health. And then after each visit, they did the same and, and wrote a story and, and took a psych eval or a mental health evaluation. And what it showed over time is that actually increases in agency and the stories that they were writing preceded improvements in mental health, but they were correlated, but actually the changes in agency came first. So to me, that's sort of exciting because that suggests that it's causative, that how we can change our stories can actually cause improvements in our mental health. Harnessing the flux capacitor for clinical good. Yes. <laughs> so let's get to your book. The book is called The Healing Power of Storytelling, Using Personal Narrative to Navigate Illness, Trauma, and Loss from Penguin. Why a book? So I wasn't really intending to write a book at this point in time. I will say that. Like, I thought, of course, someday I want to write this book. But I happened to be in, like, a very busy phase of life, and I didn't think it was going to happen right now. But an agent came to me and said, will you write this book? So... I said, okay. So it really helped me to have my co-author, Rachel Zimmerman. We used to have a series at WBUR, our Boston local public radio station, called Listening to Patients. And she was my editor during that time. So we had a relationship that way. And so we decided to work together on this book. And I think having a partner just really helped keep it moving forward, helped me on track. You know, she was a great thought partner. So sitting down and sort of she held me to deadlines. I would write, she would edit. So that really helped. And I think that John Adler and I have put together a lot of materials and a narrative guide for how we work with patients around storytelling. And we, we hadn't ever published it anywhere yet. And we sort of thought, when would we do that? So it's all in the book. So here it is now. So I'm glad that it came to be. But it wasn't like I was thinking, this is the time I'm going to write a book. It was all sort of a little bit serendipitous. What was it like to hold in your hand for the first time? It was cool. I will admit, like, after you've been sort of looking at it for two and a half years or whatever, it's been three years that I kind of like can't even see it clearly right. anymore. <laughs> like, what is this thing? No, I really do believe in the work so wholeheartedly. And I love the parts that are about the people I've worked with but are huge inspirations for me. And I, and I love the parts about them. I just get sick of myself. What are some of the key takeaways you hope readers get from the book? If they're patients, people living with chronic illness, or even doctors? Yeah, I mean, I think the key takeaway for me is one of possibility. That there's hope, that we have some choice over how we decide to move forward, which doesn't mean it's not crappy that some stuff happens and that we can't complain or that we don't have low moments. Like, I'm not trying to be all silver liney only, you know, 
things are hard. And part of this work is actually you have to dig into what's hard to like move through it and process it and come out the other side. And it's not a panacea. This isn't going to solve anything, but it, it puts some control in our hands as the ones navigating challenges to reframe things as we choose to and to make sense of them as we choose to and to put them to work in our lives as we choose to. So it's a sense of possibility that, yeah, you have some hard stuff to deal with, but there is a path forward. I love one of the quotes in the book is the good physician treats the disease. The great physician treats the patient who has the disease. How novel is that? Why is this still a thing we're discussing in 2022? I can't even believe it's a thing we're still discussing. And I even happen to wonder if it's gotten worse. Like now we're even more disease focused with the huge explosion of scientific knowledge, which of course is amazing. And we know so much now, but we've gotten like more and more sort of siloed and focused on disease scientifically rather than like, how is the person doing who has the disease? And it found me a long time to find a neurologist who I felt like actually saw me as a person and got me because many of them are bench researchers first and foremost, and they spend a lot of time in the lab. And so for them, like, yeah, they might have the answer of like the science shows that if you take this medication, it's going to do the best job to fight the, the disease process. Well, no one would ask like, what's going on in your life? And would this be a good disease? Do you want to inject yourself twice a day or side effect wise, like what's acceptable to you and all of those things. Actually, I wrote an article about how I, as a doctor, decided to go against my doctor's advice and say, I'm not going to take that medicine. 98% maybe of the comments on that were really positive, but I got some angry ones too. You know, how dare you as a doctor be a proponent of not following the doctor's advice or following science or whatever. And part of it is the system really constrains providers. There's some amazing providers out there, but you're under this huge time constraint and there are all these like quality measures and boxes to check and weird payment systems that I don't even begin to understand. And no one's really paying you for building relationships. No one's paying you to get to know your patients. And I think that's where the problem lies. Now, I'm not an economist, but I feel like if we all knew our patients better, I know we'd save money. There'd be way fewer lawsuits and way fewer tests ordered. And Because I think the way it is now, it's not working for providers or patients. A young woman, a young man diagnosed with MS today, 2022. Given the communities, the research, the nonprofit, the advocacy, do you feel like the next you, which we don't want the next you, but there's got to be a next you, is in a better place to live a better life or a different life or have more optimistic sense of self and community? Yeah, I mean, we've made a ton of progress. I think sort of, you know, in terms of the medications that are coming out and what we're learning, I think people are in a better place in terms of hopefully there'll be a treatment at some point in the not too far future. But I still think there's a lot that's unknown. And again, like I said at the beginning, like I think sometimes this is more than one disease because there's so much variability and it's not like a one size fits all thing. And so there's still a lot of unanswered questions and the medications, you know, they have side effects. And if we'd had all these treatments when I was first diagnosed, would it have helped me? No, because I think my problem is more psychological. Mm. I think I really just had trouble integrating it into my identity. Like, okay, I am someone with a chronic illness. And what does that mean? And that was really a psychological process. 
Is there a doctor in the house? Yes, there is. Dr. Annie Brewster is an assistant professor at Harvard Medical School, a practicing internist at Mass General in Boston. She's the founder of Healthy Story Collaborative, a nonprofit. We'll put a link in the description. And the author of the brand new book, The Healing Power of Storytelling, Using Personal Narrative to Navigate Illness, Trauma, and Loss, on sale now wherever books are sold. Annie, thank you so much for coming out of patience. Thanks so much. I really enjoyed it, Matt. That's all for now. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review on Apple Podcasts, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. Tell us what you'd like Matthew to cover in his next episode by leaving a message for us at 855-AUDIO-66, and we might just use it in a future show. Out of Patients is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producer is Betsy Shepard. Our host is Matthew Zachary. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Betsy Shepard. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscriptnot.com. That's media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.